Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast. I'm filling in for our regular host, Mike Roberts. I'm Ken Nahigian, wishing all of our listeners health and safety during this unusual time. And what an unusual time this is. And what a week it's been as we saw American Maritime once again step up in this response to COVID-19. If you're new to this program, we talk about issues that matter to the 650,000 American men and women who make maritime work in this great country. And we do thank the American Maritime Partnership for making this podcast happen and for being the voice of these incredible selfless Americans. Um, not only do they move critical goods between American cities, but they are the eyes and ears of our waterways and our ports. And we're now seeing that as they rise to the occasion as America needs maritime the most. We saw that with the U.S. naval ships Comfort and Mercy being ready to set sail and position in Los Angeles and New York City. For that reason, we're really excited about the opportunity to speak with a retired captain of the Comfort, Captain Randall Rockwood. And where do you even start introducing somebody like Captain Rockwood, who served our country in so many ways, including having commanded uh, 21 military sea lift command ships in the past two decades alone. So let's turn to Captain Rockwood, and perhaps he can introduce himself for our audience. Welcome, Captain Rockwood. Hey, good morning, Ken. It's uh, great to be here, and uh, um, I wish it was under better circumstances, but it's, it definitely is a pleasure to be here. So, as you mentioned, I sailed on uh, Comfort as master. I, I sailed with Military Sea Lift Command for 34 years, uh, 19 as master. And for those in the audience that might not be familiar with MSC, Military Sea Lift Command controls the replenishment of military transport ships for the for the Navy and uh, MSC has roughly 130 ships of which 50 are government owned, government operated. And those are the ships that I sailed upon as a civilian mariner. That's fantastic. Well, I hope your family and you are doing well during this pandemic. I mean, it's an odd time for everybody, but thanks for joining our program. Listen, I mean, when you saw the Comfort sail into New York Harbor, did any part of you just want to get in there and make this operation happen? Or what was your reaction to seeing that on TV? I was pleased hearing the ramp up and then seeing the execution. It was terrific because I thought the activation of Comfort and the sister ship Mercy was absolutely perfect. Because the, uh, the two ships positioned on each coast of the United States and they usually provide medical services and humanitarian aid to foreign countries in alternating years. And I thought to provide medical services in the United States would be perfect. The two hospital ships providing services simultaneously is very atypical. But considering the extent of the coronavirus threat, activating both ships was a good idea, and I thought that was perfect. You know, you mentioned that, uh, the decision to activate it. I don't know if you followed the news, but over the past month or so, there was talk about positioning these vessels for the COVID-19 response. But then all of a sudden, it seemed like it accelerated really rapidly. What you, do you think when you first heard the need for these ships may be necessary and the likelihood that they could even be ready? Well, having been on Comfort for over two and a half years as master, when I saw that they were planning to activate the ships, it didn't come as a shock or surprise because both ships, Mercy and Comfort, are in what's called reduced operating status five. So they're expected to be activated in five days. And very often they get activated in less, and, and that's a double-edged sword, of course, for the yeah, operators. Sure. But um, 
so Mercy got underway and went to uh, Los Angeles and, and uh, Comfort had a little bit more challenge getting underway as they were in the middle of a maintenance period as everybody watching the news saw. Okay, to that end, can you talk a little bit about what it might have taken to get that vessel ready? Uh, I can imagine that number one, getting the ship ready under any circumstance is a, is a challenge. First, you have to identify the personnel to put on board. Uh, in the case of the civilians, the, there are 71 civilians, plus or minus, no more than a couple, but 71 is a good number to go with. So you have to identify the 71 civilians that you're going to put on board. And the Navy has to identify all the men and women, doctors, nurses, staff, pharmacists, medical uh, food people, for example, that need to be on board in order to get the ship underway. And then a, a visual for this uh, audio podcast to be good. You have to imagine dozens and dozens, and no exaggeration, maybe even three dozens or more, 18 wheelers lined up on the dock, all trying to offload all of their supplies to the ship, which the civilians load and then have to stow prior to the ship getting underway. So that's a large effort right there. That's amazing. Now, who runs that process? When does somebody like you come into the equation? Do you manage that process or is that something that is done and then you arrive and then you take uh, control of the vessel? Well, in the olden days, uh, you know, just uh, 10 years ago or so, sometimes the master was not assigned until the last minute, but they the Navy and the Military Sealift Command found it more advantageous to have the consistency of a master assigned full-time. So the answer to your question is the master's there juggling the logistics and the onload with the able assistance, of course, of the chief mate and the chief engineer, the chief steward, all figuring out what needs to be loaded and then getting it aboard and putting it in the correct place. And then you have the additional challenge of having a hospital embedded between the bow and the stern and they have their own supplies that also need to be loaded. And uh, the civilians, of course, help with that and direct and uh, do the logistics of getting the stuff, the cargo on board and put it in the, the right places. The, the, the Navy and the uh, doctors, the nurses, they put the medical supplies, obviously, in the final location, but the civilians get it on board. You mentioned that this vessel is usually deployed overseas. How do you resupply overseas? Do you just return when the supplies are done or do you have processes to resupply when you're in foreign port? Well, as the, both hospital ships used to be San Clemente class tankers, they are significantly large. So there's plenty of storage area on board. And uh, we try to take much of what we need for a a long deployment. When I was aboard in 2011, we were away from the United States for five months. We weren't underway the entire time because obviously we were in various Latin American and Southern ports, uh, South American ports, providing humanitarian assistance and medical care. Mm -hmm. the, the answer to your question is we very often buy additional supplies on the market in the port that we're in for example, fresh fruits and vegetables, but also it's conceivable that we will need additional aviation fuel for the helicopters or lube oil. Mm -hmm. And much of that is supplied by military Sealift Command logistics ships, uh, underway replenishment type ships. So when I was underway on Comfort, we received our supplies from a Lewis and Clark class dry cargo ammunition ship, which mm -hmm. steamed alongside of us for about five hours and delivered hundreds, you know, probably closer to a thousand pallets of cargo that we needed. That's amazing. To the, the best ability you can to recall, um, could you take us this, this through a little bit of a tour of the Comfort, just, you know, what, how it's broken down, how it operates, just anything you can remember about 
the comfort that the audience might find interesting as we watch TV. Sure, so to visualize the uh, comfort is 894 feet long and just about a 106 feet wide, which that number is important because 106 used to be about the maximum that uh, a ship could be wide or the beam in order to get through the Panama Canal. That's changed now. They can accept ships that are much wider than 106. But at any rate, Comfort is just under 106, so we can get through the Panama Canal, which we did in a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So imagine a hospital embedded between the bow and the stern of a very large white ship. Mm -hmm. And then the command structure on board that ship is, is intricate and different than most ships because you have the ship's master, Mm -hmm. who in this case right now is Captain Lindy, Andrew Lindy, and he's in charge of the quote ship. And so he deals with the safety of the ship and uh, making sure that the ship is capable of supplying the, the resources that a hospital would need. For example, the electrical, the potable water, the sewage treatment or discharge, electrical of course, air conditioning, HVAC in general. And he does that in conjunction with the chief engineer who's basically in the back of the ship in the towards the engine room and currently that's uh, Joe Watts he's been there for well over 10 years he's an amazing chief engineer dealing with all the engineering issues in support of the hospital then you have the hospital CO and that is the medical treatment facility MTF so there's usually a Navy captain medical corps in charge of the hospital and he deals with all the things that you would imagine a hospital administrator deals with. And then the third part of that triangle is going to be the Commodore who's in charge of the mission. So he's, he executes the mission, in this case, going to New York City and providing uh, uh, COVID relief. So there's three different command structures on board the ship and all three have to work together. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Thank you for that. Have you have you talked by chance? Have you have you spoken to anybody since they've been deployed, or if not, um, what do you think they're going through? Well, uh, as you might imagine, they're they're all incredibly busy. But I have I do have an inkling of what's going on because I I'm currently also as, as retired military SILIF command. I'm also uh, currently vice president of master mates and pilots for the federal employee membership group which we represent the master, uh, Captain Lindy, all the mates, the purser, and if there was a, uh, a medical services officer supplied by MSC, we would represent that person too. So we represent the deck force on board the, the ship and we have correspondence with them and uh, we advocate for them, of course, with, uh, with their interests in mind, making sure that their situation is understood by those off the ship and their employer, Military Salute Command. And uh, the, just to be fair, there's other unions involved. The MEBA is involved with the chief engineer and the engineering staff. Seafarers International Union is involved with all the unlicensed personnel. So there's three unions that represent the 71 civilian mariners in support of comfort and mercy for that matter. It's absolutely amazing. And you're seeing 
uh, the need to also combat infectious disease uh, on the vessel, I assume that that just adds another complication to trying to operate at port like they are. Do you have any thoughts about that at all and how, to, how that's managed? I do. I, initially, my thought was that uh, COVID-19 would uh, be best fought off of comfort someplace else. And But I've seen on the news recently that they are now going to be purposely taking on board COVID-19 patients, although I think it was five were inadvertently placed on board for a short time. And and uh, now they're going to do it on purpose. I don't know how they will isolate them exactly on a ship. It just, um, that's, a little, you know, originally Comfort and Mercy were designed for wartime uh, trauma, you know, dealing with the things that happen in war. And this is a little bit different, dealing with a virus. And as, as uh, easily caught as it is, I'm concerned for the master mates and uh, engineers that are all on board. The, in fact, everybody, but my, my particular concern is the 71 civilian mariners on board. They're not isolated from the ship. They're there. They're living on board. In fact, how, you would, how would you not be part of the hospital when you're on the ship that is the hospital is, is beyond me. So the, the COVID-19 being treated on board the ship, I'm sure, is, a, is being thought of or dealt with at the highest levels but I have a genuine personal concern for the 71 SIVMARS that are civilian mariners that are on board. Um, sure, I mean, I think, uh, I think everybody does. It's interesting perspective. Do you think that we should have more of these types of vessels uh, in the fleet? Well, um, it, yes, in, I do think so, because when I sailed aboard Comfort, part of my shtick when I was asked questions similar to that was that, yes, of course we need more hospital ships because hospital ships represent soft power. They're not a matter of dropping bombs or shooting tomahawk missiles at anybody. When they are present, they are bringing all the best of the United States to wherever it is they, they happen to be. In my case, it was Central and South America. And I've been on plenty of ships where the port authorities had a, a litany of reasons why you couldn't come in when you were scheduled to come in, or you couldn't stay when you were in your current berth because of some other conflict. That never happens with a hospital ship. I found that they're always welcome. And the power and prestige of the United States and the medical services and the goodwill of the American people and the taxpayers when a hospital ship shows up is all so evident. And so the quick answer to your question, yes, we need more hospital ships so that they can spread the goodwill and medical services and humanitarian assistance that the United States is known for. Outstanding, they sure are. I mean, it seems like the, the perfect diplomacy uh, from a layman's perspective. Captain, this, this podcast uh, is devoted to American maritime, as you know, so we'd be remiss if we didn't point out uh, not only the shipyard operations in Norfolk, but the Coast Guard, the tugs that help guide those vessels into position, and uh, you know, we, we also saw the dredgers uh, kind of step up and make sure that Comfort could get in into port, and they rose to that challenge. But you know, just this week, even the opponents of the Jones Act have been coming out of the woodwork to try to use this um, this emergency or national crisis uh, as a call to completely repeal the Jones Act. If you're going to speak to those opposing voices, what would you say to them about how important American maritime is? and Jones Act specifically to this operation and just the nation overall. Yes, well, we know that the Jones Act is critical to the health of the United States Merchant Marine. And 
periodically influential and misinformed or misguided members of our elected, elected legislature rail against the Jones Act. So for, for those that may not be familiar with the Jones Act, just imagine that without the Jones Act, we had Chinese ships moving domestic cargo between US ports, or that we depended upon Chinese tugs to dock comfort, or we needed Chinese dredges to prepare the berth for comfort, or when you went on a tour after the coronavirus uh, of the Statue of Liberty, you ended up taking a Chinese tour boat. For the layman, I think that makes it easiest to understand the importance of the Jones Act. It employs the American Merchant Marine on the waters of the United States in support of all the people of the United States. By extension, of course, the Jones Act supports the shipyards that build the ships and the maintenance of those ships when they, when they need their periodic maintenance and upkeep. And it's just critical to the health of the United States. And I'm astounded when I see on the news periodically, just as you mentioned, the people that come out of the woodwork trying to get rid of the Jones Act. It's just uh, astounding to me. Well, thank you for your perspective on that. We obviously agree. It's amazing to watch the men and women of Maritime step up and they've done so for now, you know, over a hundred years. And we appreciate your perspective on that. You know, whenever I talk to an author of a book, I was asked the question, what is not in your book that you think I should know? And so I kind of ask you that question just openly. Now, what do you think the public should know that maybe hasn't been reported about the mercy and comfort and their crew and perhaps what they're going through from your perspective? I guess I'll start with a little, little bit about the ship. Everybody sees the ship in the news and they see the white hull and the red crosses. But uh, for those listening to the podcast, they might be interested to know that each ship, Mercy and Comfort, have 12 operating rooms and may have up to 1,200 medical personnel supporting the hospital on board. And with just 71 civilian mariners, the hospital port portion has uh, one CT scanner, four radiological suites, a thousand patient beds, which currently I saw in the news is gonna be considered 500 patient beds since they're gonna put the coronavirus personnel on board. And there's 80 intensive care beds and just one isolation ward. So I guess the entire ship is going to be considered an isolation ward now. The ships themselves are perfect for disaster relief and humanitarian support. And I think they're gonna do a very, very good job up in uh, New, York, New York City and Los Angeles in support of all those that require uh, medical care, what, whatever the care is. I know that the experienced doctors, nurses, staff, pharmacists, all the, all the people of the hospital are the very best that the Navy has to offer. And, and they're going to do a, a tremendous job and we're all going to be proud of them. Well, let's hope that that capacity is not needed, but it certainly is um, comforting to know and pardon the pun to know that it is available and uh, we have such experienced people ready to manage that. Um, if there's nothing else, we're gonna have to end it there, but Captain Rockwood, we really do thank you for being part of this today. It's been really nice to learn from you and we really truly appreciate your service to this country. You have an open invitation to come back and talk to us about anything that you uh, think is interesting or relevant in the coming days. Uh, we would welcome your voice back to that. Um, so thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. That's all for this episode of American Maritime Podcast. We thank you for tuning in and encourage you to share it with others uh, who share a love and interest in American Maritime. I'm signing off for regular host Mike Roberts. This is Ken Nahigian, and we will see you next time. Thank you very much. 